Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are back for more with Jeff Kreuter. Welcome, Jeff. Hi. As just a Thanks remi- for having me back. Uh, just a reminder, Jeff is a multiple award-winning lighting designer with Tony's, Hughes Design Awards, and Susie Bass Awards to his credit. Thank you so much for coming back. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, Jason. Thank you so much for having me back. The next show I'd like to ask you about is Bandstand. That was a really important show, in my opinion, at least. I love that show. I mean, I love all my shows, right? So I, it's not fair to say, but... <laughs> say it like that, but I had like a love affair with Bandstand. I really enjoyed working on that show very much. The process was ideal for me. Um, my working relationship with director choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler was was exactly how I like to work. I, I really enjoyed working with him. I liked his process. Um, I love the show. I love the music. I love the scenery. Both versions we did it at Paper Mill. I liked the scenery there. We they redesigned it for New York. I liked I liked that scenery too. David Corns did the set. How did your collaboration with Andy work? How did you guys communicate? And I wonder if, you know, the fact that you had such a love of dance already helped you guys communicate. It helped immensely. That's part of why he hired me to do it. I, I met him. We actually did a play. Like, he, they brought him in to do some choreography on a play um, that I was lighting. Um, there was a dance sequence in this play. Um, and he did it. And uh, and that's when we met. We sort of, you know, I'm not going to say we became friends at that point, but we were acquaintances. Um and then um, he called me about Bandstand, like sort of out of the blue. He was like, I, you know, I, would you like to talk about this? We had a couple of conversations and he decided to hire me, which I appreciate. Um, you know, he he's another, you know, he's a, he's a director choreographer and very visual, but he's also a dramaturgical person too. And he and I talked a lot about story and about, not, I don't even mean about telling story by light. Like we would just talk about the, like the story. Like we just like talk a lot about the, the play. Um, and what was working, what wasn't working, what we were trying to say up through the whole process. Um, again, he did not in pre-production, he didn't, I'm going to, I'm trying to think now he never said like, I want a scene to look this particular way. What he said was we need, you know, the there's, it's a unit set and a lot of different clubs in the Cleveland area are represented and the set really didn't change. So the lighting had to tell us we were in a different space and he wanted to find a vocabulary for what that what that was um and in most cases it was color we also had like this flying batten that would change heights so when they were in a really small shitty club the lighting batten would be lower and when they were in a fancier (laughs) club the lighting batten would be higher um and that was that was the first production that was a paper mill before we you know what was one batten became like eight battens of lights that, you know, old Fresnels that we made, um, you know, we, we wrapped the insides with, um, led tape. We made, we basically made 65, you know, the Altman 65 Q Fresnels into led Fresnels, um, using arts and crafts and glue and staples. Um, and they didn't really have to project light. It was more, it was eye candy. It was all scenery. And that was, you know, at that point, um, not that long ago, two or three years ago, there really wasn't a, for a light that looked old that could pass for something, you know, that 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 did all the color changing we needed, but also looked like a, vin- a vintage, like, you know, 1950s style um, fixture. So we had to make our own. 
that was a really cool part of that project. I, I love that look. I, I you know it's I, I would argue that there still isn't really one that size that looks that looks as real as the ones you guys made. Yeah. Um, I will say that the, um, again, like, you know, not to plug any one particular kind of, uh, manufacturer, but since there's nothing else that, that it, there's nothing else like this on the market, Chauvet makes a little Fresnel with a, a light with a Fresnel lens that, that is color changing and zooms. And I kind of love it. And if that were around when we did, um, bandstand, I would have put those everywhere. I see. So, um, it's, you know, you can't rent it in a New York shop, but I happened to see it on some demo, fortunately and i was like what you know i think it was this has happened so many times to me where i go to like i go to a moving light demo like some company has a new light that they're like trying to hawk and i look in the corner and i'm like yeah the moving light's great but i've seen that before or a version of that what's that thing over there what's that product that you're that's like lighting the wall like that's like to make the room look nice for your moving light demo that's the one i actually want and i I, that's happened twice and this for now i think was one of those like what is that? What is that crazy thing? Because I want that for some, for, I know exactly how to use that light. So the Fresnels were really a collaboration between you and David Corrins, right? I think it was Andy's idea. Um, oh. Ultimately. Yeah, it was Andy. Um, Andy wanted there to be lights hanging all over the place that would change color. The collaboration between David and I were deciding where they would go and how they would be used and what height they'd be at. And then the collaboration between me and Eric Norris, who was the production electrician, was to how to make them light up. And he demoed many different ideas before we settled on this like arts and crafts, literally craft paper, white craft paper with LED tape glued to it and in a cylinder inside of an old Fresnel. Yeah. So basic. So yeah. So anyway, so the conversations between Andy and I were had were mostly about making making the clubs look different. Um, lighting the there was a lot of drapery involved, so lighting the curtains in a different way for each club, having the light you know feel differently for you know the the there were the CD clubs that had like a, a definitely like a darker smokier feel, and there were the big ballrooms that had uh, a more like snazzy glitzy you know sparkly feel, um, and those were the things we talked about, and then you know, into actual tech, like, you know, it was to me like a sort of fascinating, fascinating way of working with someone because I, you know, I would like write a cue for a series, like a, or a series of cues for a, for a number. And he'd come out, stand next to me and we'd run it. And then he would say, okay, so fine. Um, and for this set of eight, I want to light that couple. And then for you know the seven on the third set of eight, I want to light that person standing over there. So it, so I I sort of set up what the vocabulary of the space was, and in his mind, I there's no way I, I not being in his brain, I would know what the actual focus was for him. But he really did. He choreographed it, knowing that even though everyone on stage may have been doing something similar, he wanted to pop someone out doing something very specific on a very specific count. And that was, that's the kind of thing that we would, you know, very specifically collaborate about. Um, Or like trans, like there were so many transitional moments that were cinematic that he and I would just like carve, like, you know, sculpt and carve. And, you know, he would, he would do something on stage. I would try something with the lights and he would come out and, you know, give me some, you know, direction as directors do. <laughs> so that's, that's what the collaboration was. There was this great moment where, you know, th- there was a, I don't know, I don't, I'm, can I even describe this? There was a bartender um, and, you know, with people like it was, you know, you, there was no bar. There was like a, an abstract bartender pouring alcohol and people crowding around him. And the perspective shifted at some point 
And it like struck me that the lighting perspective could shift also. And so we tried something and did it and it turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the show. Um, How do you mean perspective shifts? I guess in lighting terms, that might just be the direction of light or, or the, yeah, I think like the, like the, the perspective, I guess what I mean is like the camera angle, like the camera, like if, if the, if like the camera was shooting in one direction, the camera then like turned, turned around and shot from the other direction. And um, I know it's like, as I say this right now, it's like, yeah, no shit. The light changes, but just the way we did it, I kind of liked, I liked how we came up with it. I liked what we did. And I always looked forward to that, like very one specific moment in the show that lasted about four counts um, because I thought it was fun. Um, it's also like this great, you know, there was a great section where, you know, the use of like darkness was also nice, like very specific shafts of light, like moving through space was sort of fun. Anyway, the other thing that I loved about the lighting of that show or, or, or the, or what I was able to do was be so specific because Andy as a choreographer was so specific about what he wanted to look at. And, and I don't mean see, I mean, very specifically, you know, objects in space. Um, and he knew he was smart enough to know that if something was important that he wanted to highlight, he would, you know, have them stand still and a, and a light would make them glow within this entire other space that was moving around them and how impactful that could be. So would you say that one of the differences in working with him as a director slash choreographer is that he was able to achieve a level of specificity with respect to the things he could talk to you about that, you know, maybe other directors might not might not be able to? Yeah. In many cases, he spoke in, in counts and movement, which a lot of directors don't don't really mm-hmm. do that. Um, and what was, you know, what's nice about working with someone who's a director and choreographer is that there's only one, you know, this doesn't happen that often, but there's sometimes where the director is like directing stuff, but then there's a big musical number and the choreographer then all of a sudden runs the room. But all the pre-production and all the, all the conceptual conversations have been with the director and the choreographer isn't always involved in that. So you're sort of like trying to figure out what that, you know, what the approach is if if the director isn't involved in the number um which doesn't have fortunately for me i haven't got i haven't done that that hasn't happened to me very often but it has happened sometimes where like all of a sudden the person running the room is now the choreographer and that is a person that i have not really spoken very much to so yeah maybe that's a bad example that's happened a couple of times um but i'm i'm a, I'm a you know i like them josh Bergace is another director choreographer who I've worked with, um, who I love working with for similar reasons. He, it's, it's, you know, visual communication and that's what we do. <laughs> that's what I do as a lighting designer. It's all visual communication, visual storytelling and choreographers are pretty good at that because they have to be. Uh, so you mentioned that you're creating any number of different venues that this band is playing in near Cleveland throughout the course of the show. And then finally, there's the shows in New York at the end. What is the journey that your design takes over the course of the show? And then how does that tie into the story or storytelling of the show as a whole? So um, as, um, you know, as we've been talking about, as I mentioned, so there, you know, each club it it was important that the clubs look different just to help the storytelling. So, um, as act one sort of drives on, we're in like club to club and some are really big and, you know, fancy clubs, as I mentioned, some are like, you know, small, but as we go on, it does get a little more, I guess, a little more claustrophobic and a little more saturated as we reach that point right before we go to New York. And at that point, 
everything explodes. Like the whole thing flies open, like the set all flies away. Um, and we go from these like little relatively, even the big clubs in the Cleveland scenes were small compared to what happens when we go to New York. And we, you know, really like lighting wise, as well as everything, costumes and scenery journey from Paloma Young did the costumes, by the way, um, really did journey from like Cleveland, like small time clubs to big like New York City, Rainbow Room, you know, top of um, Rockefeller Center uh, uh, um, and uh, and, you know, big TV studios. And so it was, you know, it really just became like even less saturated like just more like clean and simple for the new york scenes and and less saturated and uh specific for me one of the things that was important about the show was you know we don't tend to think of world war ii veterans as having come back broken and damaged but they absolutely did and this show confronted that it did you know i'm (laughs) it really did um and i think in such a great way and I laughed. I sort of laughed a little bit as I was answering this because I actually don't think um, I don't think the advertising campaign really got that word out. Um, I don't I don't believe people really understood what bandstand was, partially because the title is bandstand and people assumed it was American bandstand kind of thing, like, you know, that sort of pop music. Um, But it really was about you know, people coming back from war and like just being lost and not having any sort of purpose at all and finding each other and finding music and, um, and using that to like pull their lives on again, you know, and, and move forward. Um, and in that respect, I think it was a, a really beautiful story. This could be about the clubs. This can be about other parts of the, of the show. When were time and place more literal lighting wise and when were they more driven by the feeling or emotion of being in a place and how it would feel to be there forgetting the literality of being there so much of that has did really did have to do with choreography because some of the choreography was like they were literally dancing in a club and some of it was like uh, like fantasy like you know we would be going inside the the musicians heads and what was happening around them uh, was you know was their own personal fantasy so so the story and the choreography definitely helped me like as as the lighting designer like determine what to do and what we were looking at but again like it wasn't nothing was real like it was all an abstraction similarly to how i was talking about peter and the starcatcher it was an abstraction of something now it was a very different kind of abstraction than peter and the starcatcher that that show had like especially on people had almost no color um other than like blue and white, you know, little, a very tight color palette for Peter and the Starcatcher. This was a wide range of all kinds of colors, which, you know, I mean, is not that realistic. Um, And I think the most realistic scenes were the ones that were on the streets of Cleveland because we made it seem as though they were actually like in realistic light, like what would be lighting them when they were on the street. But when they were in the clubs, um, I don't believe that any clubs were actually that colorful. <laughs> uh, I don't think, I mean, I don't know, or that dynamic or, or had like, you know, that many lighting changes. So um, there's, there wasn't really much realistic about it, but there was like, there were the contrast between like my own version of reality and then the absolute fantasy moments where things were in, in people's heads. So, and that was uh, script driven, script and director driven. And and so some of that had more to do with, well, how does it feel to be standing on stage playing at a club when what you want to be doing is playing music and here you are playing music and, and just how everything looks and feels. Everything is so heightened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to say it. 
like put myself in the musician's head at a certain point. Yeah. The other thing about the lighting was that it really did contract and expand. We would get really small on someone and like pinpoint isolate the, a musician as, as if to say to the audience, like what is happening on stage right now is a direct result of that person, the brain. And then at other times we would, you know, we would not be so, um, so introspective about um, what the light was doing. I noticed that you did a little costuming on the LED PARs, not the Fresnels, but the LED PARs you used. Yes. To, to sort of mask their front end so that you didn't see those like little chiclets of, of LED light. Yeah. Yep. I know it drives me crazy, especially in period pieces when you see those. So I, I, what I, what I kind of want to ask you is tell me about how you felt about that and why it was important to spend that money and time doing it. And then tell me maybe why you think it doesn't always get dealt with. Oh, I don't know why it doesn't always get dealt with. Uh, well, no, I, maybe I, I can just take a guess. But to answer your question, it is important because it's a period show and having diodes at the front of an LED light would just have been wrong with all with the period costumes and the period scenery and the period music and the period movement. Um, seeing LED pars on stage because also the way we placed the LED pars, we didn't they weren't in the grid. I mean, they weren't hanging above the action. Those lights were actually at head, eye, and shoulder level. So they were very much part of the picture. So the real answer to this question is that there was no way in hell they were going to be on that set unless we found a way to disguise them. We also painted them. I mean, we painted them with, you know, we made them dusty. We made these like brand new fancy LED pars look old. Oh shit, we didn't just paint them. We actually, we decided to be nice to the shop and covered every fixture in black wrap and painted the black wrap so that we weren't actually painting the light themselves. Um, and when I say painted, I just mean like distressed. Mm -hmm. We made them look like old and shitty and disguised the front so that it looked like they really would fit in. And the reason, so uh, the reason I didn't use like the fake Fresnels down there is because I actually needed them to do shit. I needed punch and like brightness and, you know, real color out of those lights because they did a lot of work in the show. Yeah, they weren't scenic. They were real lights. They were real lights and they were on a lot and they were incredibly important to the design. So that's why we didn't hang like dummy lights down there. I needed a bright LED par and it needed to not look like an LED par. So what we ended up doing didn't really cost all that much money. City Theatrical built us an adapter plate and we used something off the shelf that we stuck in front of the lens. I can't remember what that was now. Might have just been a concentric ring, actually. Just enough to disguise the LED, disguise the diode. It didn't need anything else. We just needed something to so that people couldn't see clearly what was happening behind the lens. It, it wasn't just the, the diodes, and it was, it was also the way they changed color. I mean, it would have been... The, the diodes, yes, absolutely would have been distracting, but also if we didn't do something to mask the front, just the fact that they were changing color the way they did would have pulled focus in a bad way. I see. Uh, so, so they, so they changed color live. Oh yeah, constantly. <laughs> that's the other reason why I had to mask the front, because they changed they changed color live and a lot. And that's what I mean when I said before that there wasn't they like there was like a realism that wasn't really real. Like lights in the 1950s didn't change color. Mm -hmm. These lights changed color like crazy. Yeah, even that little six color ring with the motor didn't exist back then. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any more thoughts about Bandstand? You know, it was on tour at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was doing very well on the road. And that was one of the one of the casualties of uh, of COVID. The the tour got uh, closed down and will not pick back up, and that makes me very sad because um, it's great to revisit that for a tour. And the cast was so good, and the show looked phenomenal, and it was doing very well. So I think that's it for Bandstand, and maybe that's it for Bandstand for us. 
In that case, I want to ask you about the big project, the one I think took you to the end of things before the quarantine, Freestyle Love Supreme. It's incredibly cool. It's a real breath of fresh air, I'll say that. So I was actually working on, I had done a couple of other shows after that before we, we shut the whole thing down. Um, and one of them is Beyond Babel. That was still running and will reopen um, in New York. And one of the coolest shows I've ever done. And I, and I hope everyone gets a chance to see it. It's, um, it's a uh, hip hop um, dance show, like, you know, but, but with a narrative, I mean, it's actually loosely based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, Keone and Mari Madrid are the choreographers and the stars of the show. And it's just so cool. It's a great, great show. And I, I can't wait to to get that open again. Sounds awesome. And it's, I have a feeling it's going to be one of the first things back because it's dance and then therefore no equity and equity is, you know, correctly uh, representing their, um, their constituents and uh, being very careful about what can reopen when, but in this case, um, since it's dance and no one's, you know, no one's speaking on stage, no one's singing, there's less, um, less danger of spreading anything. Where is it? The gym at Judson church, uh, Washington square park. It's cool. Really cool show. And then it's going to go on tour, I think, after that. And also, I was doing, you know, I was in tech for a show um, that the civilians were producing that my script is still sitting on the tech table there. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. I, I should call them at some point, find out, like, if we're, are we going to finish teching that show and open it? We'll see. Um, but yeah, so Freestyle of Supreme, um, and we were, you know, we were in the planning phases of that tour when things got shut down and have yet to revisit it other than to say that it's going to go out on tour, but not in 2021. I think it's going to go out in 2022, but super fun show. Um, great experience. That show I was involved with, I mean, I think for 14 years from the first time I did it off Broadway, I did the original Ars Nova production of Freestyle of Supreme, um, as did the set designer and as did the costume designer. So they were very kind in a, in a world that is often unkind. And when it came time to remount it and do another off-Broadway production at the new Ars Nova downtown at Greenwich House, they called all of us back to do it, which is super awesome. And I am grateful. And then got the call a few months after it closed off-Broadway that it was moving to Broadway. Um which, you know, if anyone anyone who knows the show, and I guess anyone who, even if you don't know the show, it presented some challenges because Free Style of Supreme is different every night. It's a different show every night. Um, it is improv. Um, it's it's improv, hip-hop, music. And um, we were designing for something that had to change every night. But we were able to build in some tricks on our end to make it work. Um, if there are five people on stage were five plus because there's, you know, musicians also. So there's two musicians and then five or six performers um, and a beatboxer who's like awesome. If they were able to improv and play off of each other, then the lighting could improv and play off of them as well. And that was our approach. And we set that up for success. <laughs> that was our job. Our job was to make it like, make this possible. Um, which meant, which uh, you know, other than, you know, the normal Broadway, the normal theater model, but certainly the normal Broadway model is that you have a stage manager who says the word go to a person who hits a button and the cue changes every time that button is pressed. Now, there are certain things, you know, not to get too far into the weeds here, but there are certain things that are on run on time code and there are certain things that are automated. But like I say, for the most part, like somebody says go, somebody hits a go button. In this case, there were elements of that. There were elements of the show that were called but there were also elements that were busked on Broadway, which does not happen very often. 
How is the show structured? Is it like there are sections which will typically contain the same kind of thing every night? How sort of crafted is the improv? There are sections, as you said. So there are sections. Um, now, as far as the same kind of thing, no, truly the words, every word that came out of their mouth every night was different. So there were no tricks as far as that goes. But there were like there was like one section, for example, the improv changed on counts. So every eight counts, it went to another person to say something um, based on a word given to them from the audience. And then eight counts later, it went to someone else based on a word that they were given from the audience. So what we did was we made them stand in the same place every night, even though the words would be different, where they were standing on stage would be exactly the same. And we knew that the light would change every eight counts. So we were able to like structure that to be like, okay, now we're over here. So we would always be the same order and always be the same timing. It's just that what they were saying was made up on the spot or like a couple of seconds before on the spot. So that was one section. Another section, which is like a little, what I would call like the MTV unplugged section where they all like gather and sit on stools. Um, again, they sat in the same place every night and sang a song that was made up as they were doing it. But the emotional vibe of that section was the same every night. It was a slow song, so we could light it like that with like, you know, pretty shafts of light in the air with a bunch of people sitting on stools down center um, with a nice pretty background that would change. I mean, we knew how they were structuring the song, so we built it as though we knew what the structure was. The only difference was we, we didn't know the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So that's, we just had to be crafty. And for the sections that were, and there were definitely sections where people didn't stand in the same place every night and the story was different every night. Those were the like the full on busked sections of the show. And a guy named Andrew Garman was hired because he had assisted me before. And I knew he had, he had done, he had lit some shows on his own and I met him when he was an electrician. So I felt like he had a lot of the bases covered. He knew where to put his hands on the console and he also had design sense. Mm -hmm. And there were definitely things that he made up every night, but there were also set pieces that we incorporated into the system and like a whole series of touch screens all over the place where he could hit a button and the lights would go into a look like, for example, a subway. So, you know, oftentimes because one of the sections of the show was called a day in the life. And it would it would start with how they woke up in the morning. It would end with them walking into the theater to see Freestyle of Supreme. It's New York City. So invariably, they would either be in the subway, on a train somewhere, on a bus or in a taxi cab. So we had our subway station look. We had our on the train look with like movement and like fancy shit, like flashing all over the place like you're on a subway train. We had our taxi look which like made it look like you know the lights moved as though there was motion that you know being inside a car we had our walking down the streets of new york city look we had our walking through central park look so he was able to act that stuff at the press of a button and then on top of that react to what they were doing musically so and, and you know and, and they would also like jump into weird abstract musical shit so he would be able to be like okay we're in we're walking through the park but now oh my god we're doing this really crazy section and i'm gonna like i'm gonna do this now instead i'm gonna turn everything this color or this color so listen i, I didn't see every show and some nights i'm sure it was successful and some nights maybe it was less successful like improv he, you know, like anything, I'm sure the show some nights was super successful and some nights less successful, but he had that ability to really, you know, to drive it and to go where, to go where they were going on stage all amongst a very, <laughs> a very tight setup, you know? So we, we, we set him up for success. There was also like, oftentimes they would end up 
in like time travel sections and we had our like time travel cues where things were swirling all over the place and then swirling back. It was, you know, it was a lot. It was, it was, we, we did a lot and, 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 you know, and to tech it was, you know, the tech was, was so bizarre because there's no, there's no script. I mean, all that, you know, they, we would make stuff while they were on stage rehearsing and playing around. And then we would like run a section, like they would ask for, you know, words from the audience or like a situation from the audience. And we would run a section and just see how it went. And the director, Tommy Kale would respond to what we were doing and say things like, take that look out of the show. I'm not a huge fan of that. So maybe don't ever do that. Like remove that from the system. And we would be like, fine, great. And he would be like, you know, wouldn't it be, would be great if we had something like this. So we would build it and find a way to incorporate it. Um, and if it weren't for, you know, as you know, the other thing is that he was, he is the one like after a day of tech downtown off Broadway, he saw what we were able to do and then was able to say, okay, let's actually cue this section. Like for the, the example I gave before where there were eight counts and then eight counts and eight counts when that as originally structured, they weren't standing in the same place in the light weren't changing but he saw what we were capable of and like i don't know like in 10 minutes we had a whole like concept from like having nothing having no idea what the section was really going to be we were like okay now we know exactly what this is so then we were able to like take the next step and be like okay now now that we have this like general concept of what this is how do we make it like more interesting and then, like, we moved it to Broadway, and we had this general concept that was then sort of interesting. And then now, how do we make this a Broadway show? And that is just, you know, more production. Like to me, that's what—that's one of the one of the things that made it a Broadway show is that there was production. There were there were costumes, and there was a set, a really cool set. Beowulf bore it to the set. Uh, Lisa Zinni did the costumes. Um, really cool set, and uh, like a design. And I think that's that's what that's what made it, you know, a Broadway show. Um, I mean, also like incredibly talented people and an audience. Oh, we also did something cool. I, I I think I say cool, like, because I think it was cool. We turned the whole space into a big club. Like, you know, when we did it downtown at Greenwich House, like people walked into Greenwich House and they weren't walking into a theater. They were walking to a, a club, like loud music was playing. Lights were moving in the theater. It was all like saturated color. It wasn't like house lights up walking into a theater. And we turned the booth theater on 45th Street into a giant club where like we didn't use the theater's house lights we put like led pars all over the place and just made the place look cool like a fun like a fun club and loud music was playing and there was smoke everywhere and people knew what they were like we made it a party atmosphere the second people walked into that room they knew what they were getting themselves into i think so so it was it was a blast a blast it seems like one of the critical things was that you had to kind of show them what you could do before they got like, okay, so these are the ways in which having a little structure helps. And yeah. so like, it's like, well, if you give us this much structure, then we can do these things, which we, which we can then improvise from. Yes. But you kind of had to show them that first. Yes. We, we, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know how much of it would be set until we were a day into tech and then a half a day into tech. And then, you know, we really thought the entire show was going to be busked and that Andrew was going to like make like with our buttons to hit like things to, you know, to have the lights change, he would still be making it up as he went along. And it wasn't until halfway through the first day of tech where we realized that we could actually set stuff that we kind of went in that direction. And, you know, there was a stage manager, Cody, um, Reiner Richard was the stage uh, manager on the show and when we started tech, 
he wasn't calling cues. There were he was like saying house to half, house out, performers on stage go. And then we were actually like setting things. Like we were setting things that Andrew was then like trying to take cues based off of music and off of like certain actions on stage. And, you know, we were trying to figure out the best way to do that. And to Cody's like amazing credit, at a certain point he turned around to me and he said, do you want me to just call these cues? And that blew my mind. I was like, yes, yes. That's how this is going to work like a show. Like it's, it's still going to be different every night. But when the changes happen, we're going to be relatively the same. And so he and Andrew were, were like, it was a partnership. The booth, like even on Broadway, they were standing next to each other the whole time. In, uh, at, you know, at Greenwich House, they were in a booth in the back. Um, uh, not, not a booth. No, they were in the last row of the balcony or off to the side in the balcony. And on Broadway, they were in uh, one of the box seats. They, they, we took one of the boxes at the booth theater and made it a lighting and stage management booth. Um, and it looked pretty fierce, actually. It looked like it was very technological yeah. with all those touch screens and like two consoles and like fader wings and all kinds of shit that we used to run the show. It sounds like the way things primarily worked was that you would see what they were doing. You'd make some stuff to show them and then they would see it. Yeah. And you mentioned that two of the comments were things like that doesn't work for me or we could do something like this. In a little more depth, how do those conversations tend to work between you and the directing team? It was the director. I mean, specifically with Tom, Tommy was really the only one that was, that was coming up to me. The, the other creators of the show were on stage. Tom, Tommy's the, the only creator of Freestyle of Supreme that's not in the show. I believe that's true. I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. So you weren't, to, you weren't so much getting four opinions. No, 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 no. Tommy, no. Tommy was the only one who was, who was giving um, notes, who was giving me like feedback. We would, we would do something in an, in an improv form, we would try something. Also, sorry, I, I have to, I, I didn't say this and I should have said this like way earlier. Sh- Sean Beach programmed off Broadway and set us up for success. Like all of this stuff, this touchscreen stuff and these like moving parts, Sean like developed this system. There's a hundred ways to do, maybe not. There are other, there are ways to do this on the EOS. Um, and Sean like developed our, the, the way we did it on the EOS and it was, it worked very well. So Sean would, you know, I would say something to Sean, like, can we build this? And can it look like this? That's if, that's if I was feeling vague about something, or sometimes I would be very specific about like, take like those lights and try, try doing this thing with them and see what that looks like. And Tommy was there, you know, he was behind us, like watching us like fuck around with shit and try things and like create like lighting ideas um, and like create our lighting playground or create our lighting sandbox or our toolkit and tommy would see something and then say okay for this moment can we take something like this and and use it here and that would be something that we would then focus on and and become very specific about you know we would do it and run it and i would say to tommy something like that and he would say no but i'm sure you'll get there i'm like great (laughs) That did happen a few times, but he was right though. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, of course that, that is the correct answer. Like he, it was never like that first time we showed something to him, it was never really right. If it was wrong, he would let us know. But the fact that it was right enough, he was ready to move on to something else and let us make it look really cool when we had the opportunity later. I will say even from my own perspective, like even when I'm just lighting a live band or something, I know that there are people who can do that busking thing where they work completely live 
where they just call lights up into positions and then and then put colors in them and things. And I, I've I've never been able to do that. I've always needed to build a base of a bunch of different pick from looks first. I don't know anyone in in this day and age with 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 everything that moving lights do, um, and the amount that we use, and um, the way the consoles are. I don't personally know anybody that can walk into a rig without having some shit together and and create a show and just busk like that. And, and if someone is out there that does that, I would love to like have a little coffee with them and just talk about what their approach is. I don't work in that world, you know. I mean, I feel like the the technology has surpassed that ability as far as I can tell. But I'm yes, I'm sure people can do it. Not on an EOS, I gotta say, but maybe I don't know. Uh, we talked a while ago in this podcast here about what I have done in my career, and I will say I've never done like rock shows. That that is one thing. Like as a professional, I did like as a kid and in college, I did some like rock shows. But as a professional, I've never really done a rock show. So that's something I would love to maybe do sometime. Also, that could be. That could be fun. I think I can I can take my skills somewhere and do that. But that's again a whole other mindset. Um, I think you know. But at the end of the day, like what, what the story is for me, always like you have to have your shit together. You have to have some idea about what you want to do. You have to be able to be like so adaptable because not everyone in the room is going to love what you're doing, um, and you have to be able to adjust to make them love what you're doing. And you have to, for me, um, be able to tell some sort of story. Because again, even Freestyle of Supreme, the story is different every night. It's still a story and the lighting just in the same way I said this before. And the same way that seven people on stage can adapt and improv and tell the same story, the lighting can do and had to do the same thing. It had to adapt and tell the same story that they were telling. Somehow, like the performers on stage knew what to do next. So somehow Andrew had to like get inside their brains the way they were getting in each other's brains and figure out what to do next. Yeah. That that was the approach. Still storytelling. It, it sounds like you absolutely had the right lighting director on the show. You know, you know, it's like it's it's a funny skill set, and I'm glad you got someone that had it. It's hard. It's it's hard. It's it's harder than people think. It just to make split second decisions like that um, every night, every night, different show, split second decisions with whatever at the booth, like just under a thousand people in the audience, and at any given night, the director or the lighting designer could be in the back of the house, like somehow thinking that you should do something else. But that's, I didn't, I never did that. I would, I don't think I gave him once the show opened, even if I came back to check out a section just to watch, because I was watching not, I came back not to watch the lighting. I came back because I, I adored the people in the show and I really enjoyed watching them. I would never give him a note about like what to do or how to do it. I don't think I did give him some follow spot notes (laughs) because that was a little rogue at a certain point. Was he calling spot Uh, too? No, the no, the operator, the the person running the follow spot was calling the, his own follow spots, and he and he was having a little too much fun improving himself. <laughs> um, and I remember watching the show, and I started texting Andrew, like, "What's going on? <laughs> what is happening up there?" And then, um, you know, Andrew of course was busy and couldn't text me back, so I had to run up to the box, and be like, "Please, please tell him to just keep like, don't like, he's not part of the improv. <laughs> that is not like, please. Oh my God, what's happening?" I was like, "Well, for the last twelve years, all I've all I've been able to do is just do the same thing every night. Now I finally have my chance." He was really very disappointed when he got that 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 memo. I saw him like a couple of days later, and he was like, "Really?" I was like, "It's." I said, I said, first of all, it's not, it's not necessary. There's so much else going on. We don't need that element. And second of all, if Tommy Cal walked in and saw what you were doing, 
he would kill me. Like, it's just so you can't like he, the, the idea of a follow spot for, for me and for, in this particular case for Tommy was not to be seen. It was just to augment what was happening out there and to, and to light people so that the rest of the lighting could do like, you know, crazy shit. But the person singing was still always lit. That's what we use that follow spot for. Got it. Uh, any other thoughts about freestyle love Supreme? I can't wait to put that on tour. It's going to be super fun. I really, you know, the lighting rig for that show was a very strange process in putting it together. Um, we did it downtown, you know, off Broadway where we didn't have a ton of money. So it really became about what I could get that was on the shelf at PRG, which was the lighting shop who did it. Um, so Sean Beach and I went to PRG. They hung 10 moving lights for us. And we just played around with them and chose what we thought was the best one as the workhorse of the show. Something that I want to ask you about, and, and, and I was inspired to ask this question by a uh, Martin learning session I watched the other day. What is something you miss from the past? And that could be a piece of equipment, that could be a craft that's, that's going away, or that could be a venue, anything like that. I've heard people get asked this question and sometimes when people answer light bulbs, it drives me crazy. I don't know why. But what do I miss from the past? Um, this is not something I miss from the past necessarily. But this could maybe this is a multi a multi part answer. One of the things that I appreciate that I'm not going to say I miss it, but I wish there was more of is is great follow spot operators. I think um, the difference between the amazing follow spot operators. Um, this is on Broadway or any place you go, I think. And the ones who are not so great are giant and the great ones, the great follow spot operators are artists in their own way. Um, and, um, I've had the experience with both and the difference is marked to me. I want, I want there to be more people who fall in love with running a follow spot. So I don't know, maybe, maybe this is something like that I'm pre-missing like with, you know, with all of this equipment that is remote controlled, you can have someone sitting in the basement and running a lamp. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I guess the same skill applies. It's like the video game follow spot, but you know, I really appreciate a great follow spot operator. So I want there to be more of those. I know that's not really an answer to your question. That's absolutely an answer to my question. Uh, and it is a concern. I mean, I didn't actually come to comprehend this until relatively recently, actually, that there is a level of follow spot skill that I didn't know existed. Uh-huh. And That's so right. it's a good question. How do you get people like that? How do people get that good at it? And how do you convince yeah. people that it's worth building those skills? These are questions I'm asking yeah. you. Um, oh, oh, that's oh, I was agreeing. I was like agreeing with the um the rhetorical nature of that question, but it wasn't rhetorical at all. Um, how do you get people good at that, man? I don't. Yeah, I don't know because I, I the, the reason I can't answer that question truly is because I don't know how the people who are good at it got good at it. Somehow they ended up in the theater with a job, and somehow they ended up in the booth, and somehow they committed themselves to being good at something to, 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 to a craft, because certainly no one's walking out of a Broadway show saying, you know what, that follow spot operator was amazing. Um, I don't think, I don't think people walk out humming the lights, much less humming the follow spot operator. And yet, um, we know as lighting designers, as people who work in the theater, when it's bad, we off, maybe we don't always know when it's good, but it's, you know, what it takes is someone who takes real pride in their work and real dedication to doing it. And probably, it also takes a little bit 
of instinct and a little bit of something you're born with in a way, in the way that I'm not a good enough guitarist to be a professional musician. I'm probably also not a good enough person, like technician to be a, a false spot operator. Who knows? Maybe I am. I mean, I don't know. But I think it's something you just have to be good. You, you, you know, you, you, you can train a lot of people to do it, but if it's not in your blood to be able to be great at it, then I don't know how, I don't know how great you'll be. I will add, it's not just turning a light on and off because follow spot operators very often take their own cues in a Broadway show. So you, you have to understand timing and you have to understand, there's so many things that great follow spot operators understand and you have to be sort of, you know, you have to have an intelligence about it too. You're not just pointing a light at the stage. There is so much more to it than just turning a light on and pointing it at the stage. So how do we train more people to do that? You, you sort of get people into the booths and say, run this and see if they love it. But it's not something, I'm not sure you're going to see a lot of, you know, advertisements for it in Theater Crafts Magazine. Remember, remember Theater Crafts Magazine? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a great job. It's actually a great job. I mean, you know, working on Broadway is possible. You know, there's, there's money in that, too. And it's fulfilling. And, and you get to work with, again, like while we all do this, you still get, you also get to work with some pretty fun people. I do realize there's something else that I, that has gone away that I miss. It's not completely gone away yet, but it's it's going away because they're making any more of them and they're just getting old. Uh, the VL 3500 wash. Um, I don't believe there's a real replacement for that yet. I know some people say that there are, but I've yet to really see it in action. Oh, I love that fixture. Yeah, I love that fixture. And I will almost like this, the VL 3500 spot with the shutters still like one of my favorite moving lights. And arguably there are other th- lights out there in the led world that do that um still not as quite the same as that 30 as the 3500 spot but there is no led equivalent of the 3500 wash and the the company that invents that will sell them like hotcakes as they say now the problem with them is that it sounds like you know you're idling a Volkswagen in the grid so you have to be careful. You had to be careful about how they use them. You can't, if you put, you know, 10 of them on a show, you, the sound designer is going to be knocking on your tech table. Like, dude, mm-hmm. what are you, what are you thinking? Um, but I mean, it's a great light. So, you know, anyway, that's what I want to see. I want to, I want to see that. I want to, I, I want to see someone make that. So, so yeah. So while I say that's something that is like going away that I miss, I, I want very badly to see it not go away. So hopefully someone can recreate that in an LED form. Is the following statement true? What you're talking about is the love and care that was put into the creation of the optical trains of those VL3000 line fixtures. It was the, the, that shark's bulb source with that dimmer wheel, with those optics, with that color mix system. Yes, absolutely true. All those things. And when it came to the wash, like, yes, all those things are absolutely true about the spot and shutters, which, you know, did exist, but they but they were better in that light than any of the other ones yeah, on the market sure. at that point. But as far as the wash goes, um, also the size, it, it was like the, the amount of acreage that you could cover with one fixture was just awesome. Like for single source, you know, you know, backlight, you know, or diagonals or, you know, big shafts of light. It was there was nothing cooler. There is nothing cooler. I know I'm invited to look at new fixtures all the time, but they're all spot fixtures. There's not, I, I'm not invited to, to look at the VL3500 the VL replacement. There, I mean, there's a lot of product on the market. I wouldn't want to own a rental shop right now. It's just and to, to decide what to, what to use. I mean, I know what my favorites are, but 
uh, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got their own thing. And, and a lot of these companies have good stuff. That, that's the other thing. Like the, the, um, the span, the, 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 uh, the difference between like good and mediocre is way smaller now than it used to be. And there's nothing, there's no game changer. I think that's, that's, I think maybe that's what, what I would say. Like VL was a game changer in everything they did until they weren't anymore. Um, And then Martin, you know, I mean, they didn't invent the idea of of an LED wash fixture, but that Mac Aura kind of was a game changer, like in the world of lighting. Like, you know, at a certain point, everybody wanted to knock off the Mac Aura. Yeah. Like I went, I remember, I don't go to LDI very often, but I remember I went years ago, like right after like, you know, Mac, right after Mac Aura had been like everywhere um, and everyone was buying the Mac Auras, I went to LDI and the, I noticed two things. One, that the amount of haze and smoke in the air was insane. I've never seen so much haze and smoke in one room in my life. I can't imagine I ever will again. It was crazy. Um, and the other thing I noticed was that every booth had an imitation Mac Aura. Again, I know that they didn't even invent it, but they somehow were able to sell it. Um, when there is a game changer, once that game changing fixture come out comes out, well, I think we'll all jump on that. You know, I, you know, every, everyone had for a while. Everybody had to have the Viper, and everybody had to have the Macora. Before that, everybody had to have something else. I don't know what everybody has to have now. I don't know what that is anymore. How do you feel about how we control color currently? How much time do you have? I've got, I've got enough. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say I'm not, I'm not satisfied. So there, there you go. D- I'm done. No, I'll, I'll elaborate. So, um, how do I feel about how we control color? I'm, I'm not satisfied. Um, I have my own way of doing it, but I feel like it's my own like stupid hodgepodge of how I like approach color in a moving light. Um, it is hard. It must be hard. We were just talking about how many moving lights are on the market. Um, and how many different companies make a moving light? Well, multiply that by I don't know how many, a lot, and is how many different things on the market right now change color in in LED or or not or or you know there's like it's everything now has changes color. You know the console has to somehow keep up with that. I think I think the onus has maybe from a lot of people been on the console. I feel like it really should be on the manufacturer to give information to the you know, to the, to the people who build the console so that their color actually looks good coming out of their light. Yes, yes, and yes on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if they spend time, listen, they have people working at these development, you know, they have people developing all kinds of lights that change color. Why can't they spend what amount, I mean, a week, like just like giving you the, the mix for your favorite Lee Roscoe and Gam colors. And then you can work from there because I know that when I, like type a color into an EOS from some like moving light that's not one of the popular ones that that they mix, it will look terrible and embarrassingly so. So then I have to go mix color and that just takes time. And what people don't do anymore is sit down and pick gel color. Like that like multiple hour long process that I used to spend actually thinking about what filter I was gonna put in front of a light. I don't really do that anymore, but um, I do spend time thinking about mixing color coming out of the front of a moving light. So, you know, that's the problem. That's the problem with color is that it's, it's inconsistent. I wish it were, I wish it were easier. I wish it were better. I wish it were faster. I wish the, I wish you, I can type in Roscoe 68 into a console and it would just look like 68 because, you know, 68 out of a source four only looks one way really. 
I guess, I don't know, maybe, you know, a, a, a 750 watt source for our 68 looks different than a 575 watt source for. So, you know, there are differences, but 68, you know, I think when I say R68, I know what I want it to look like. I, I know what the properties are. And it's amazing to me how often I type that into a console and the light goes nowhere near it, like nowhere near it. So I don't want to put the onus solely on the console makers. I think the onus has to be on the manufacturers also. Yeah. The console has to be able to talk to something and tell it what it needs. It can't work the other way around. It's really on the fixtures. And whether that means that all these things can be preloaded into the desk as part of a profile or, you know, the actual values of the frequencies of all the colors of the LEDs in the fixture or the colors of however many color flags the thing has, those properties can be sorted into some kind of a document that the console can understand. Yeah. So that way you can request, you know, whether that's a location in color space or you can request a specific gel color and say matched to like it looks like in front of a source 4750. Yeah. Because currently, I know I'm not the only person who's just going to the shop and then grabbing one of everything and just writing color for a day or two at a time, just just yeah, so I have yeah. some kind of base. But even then, I only have like 40 colors I do that with. Right. And so like if you specifically want L161, you know, and I don't have that one, then it's, well, we're mixing it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. Um, the other thing I started doing is getting, I'm sort of moving away from like numbers, like, you know, Roscoe Lee Gam numbers in, in sometimes in my approach. And I just use an, a color array system where like we mix. And again, like I say me because I do this, not me because I invented this because I did not. This has been, this is other, I'm not the only one who does this, but what I do and other people do is a, a, a color array. Like, you know, here's like, here are the show colors, like here, are six blues, six somethings, you know, like, so you can say, okay, put fixture 11 down right and make it medium blue. So there's like, like pale blue, light blue, medium blue, steel blue, saturated blue, dark blue, super dark blue. And it is sort of different for every show anyway. What, what's nice is that when I have the time, I actually take the time and, you know, even if I load the colors from another show, I take the time to tweak those colors based on the floor and the set and the costumes of the show that we're doing. So there is a little variety in it, um, which, you know, it works, but it takes time and it takes a good programmer. Um, and it takes, yeah, it takes someone, pa it takes patience on someone's part to actually do it. The one nice thing about doing it in the theater is that you actually have elements of the show. You actually have the floor and you have the like the drops and you have the wall so you can mix it on something that is that is relative and also the correct height and if i get that extra day with a programmer they spend an extra day mixing color that is something that they do all day i mm -hmm. i watch on i think it was on holiday and i watched mark Palamani like cuz we had and this was this was a function of the budget more than anything else we had so many different kinds of lights we just had so many different kinds of moving lights and different kinds of things that make color, you know, that they change color from, from like different kinds of, even like we had two different kinds of like strip lights, like led strip lights and like led pars of all kinds and like different kind of led wash lights. So Mark like spent like six hours more, more than six hours, just like going blind, mixing color for all these things and did a great job. Thank you, Mark. And of course that paid tremendous dividends over the next, you know, weeks as you were needing to pull things up quickly. Yeah, you have to do it. And then you can tweak from there. Then you say like, okay, bring this, like, let's go to this color. Okay, now let's make a new color that's based on that, but that's something else. 
And, you know, to people who think they're mixing color by just like typing the Roscoe number in and recording that as a palette, that's not mixing color. <laughs> Where's the best place for people to go to see the greatest breadth of the work you've done? I have a website that was made in, I don't know, 100 years ago that that I've just updated a few times, but the technology is pretty old and crappy. But jeffcroyder.com has like pictures of shows I've done, um, but the website itself is not great. If any of you out there want me to hire you to design me a new website, um, please email me. I need one. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to impart to everyone? You know, here's what I'll say. Like my, my other than like um, Jeff Croyder needs a new website. My parting words are, you know, this is a hard time for people in the arts. I mean, certainly in the theater, but in the arts in general, um, people are are going through a hard time, and 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 certainly financially. Um, but like emotionally and spiritually, and you know, it's just hard to be away from this thing that we all love so much because I don't think most people get into theater if they don't love it. And, you know, my love affair with theater started when I was a kid and only grew and grew and grew and grew. And to one day be told, like, shut the door and don't go back in. Oh, and by the way, like, you're still out and we don't know when you're going back in. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, there isn't a day goes by that I don't think about that and just like yearn to get back into it somehow. But, you know, what do I say? Where do I go from here? So, like, my only message would be like, yeah, stay strong. But that's so easy. But but I think the other real message is like, you're not alone. I think that's important to know. There's so many of us going through it. Like, you're not alone. And call a friend. Reach out. Like talk to people because I bet that if you call five people tomorrow, they're going to be feeling the same way you are. And, you know, it's just not a, it's not bad to be able to talk it out. So, and we'll be back. We might not get back to the strengths that we were as quickly as we want, but we will get back there and we will surpass it and we will be strong again. And that's what gets me through every day. All right. Thanks very much, Jeff. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.